Silence in us, O God, any voice but yours. And open us this morning to your truth and your love. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I try to avoid using a lot of big words in talking about faith as if it were some kind of academic exercise. But during the summer months, I get a little bit more time to read books, and this week, for better or worse, I'm going to geek out a little and tell you about a couple of big words that helped me in thinking about this week's scripture passage. The first one I'm going to talk about is a philosophical principle called commensurability. And then I'm going to talk about a spiritual idea called disordered attachments. Both of these ideas helped me as I thought this week about the Old Testament books of Samuel and Kings, and I'll be preaching on these books for the next three weeks. So I was reading this book of, uh, by a philosophy professor named Kieran Setia. And he reminded me that when making choices and seeking happiness, most of us think in terms of commensurability. Some things are commensurate, so determining, determining what you want is easy. If someone asks you if you'd like to find $50, or if you'd like to find $50 twice, you're probably going to take the $100 option. These are commensurate choices, because the one is clearly favorable to the other. Other choices are not so easy, even if both options are good, simply because they are not commensurate. Imagine that you can spend Friday night one of two ways. You can attend a show or a ball game you've been looking forward to, or you can go to a party at the home of someone you've been wanting to get to know. Either of the options will be a good one, but each one leads to a different kind of satisfaction. And choosing any one of the options will prevent you from choosing the others. No matter what you choose, you are bound to miss out on something else. Unless we choose not to seek out any opportunities at all, that missing out sensation is impossible to avoid. So you see, our happiness, our satisfaction, often depends on our ability to enjoy the choices that we do make and to be at peace with the choices we did not make and therefore are missing. I'm sure that many of you can come up with examples of how this works. One of the most common ones is, uh, applies to people my age, in middle life, and facing the crisis that often comes with it. Psychologists will tell you that midlife crisis thinking is always grounded in a struggle over incommensurate choices. In the years leading up to midlife, in our 30s, most of us tend to make commitments. 
We make family commitments. We purchase a home. We purchase a car. And we choose to have a job that will support these commitments. And then somewhere around age 40, we start to see that having made those commitments, there are other choices that are no longer possible. Our commitments keep us from other choices that we once thought or dreamed about. They are no longer options. This is not unique to people who are around 40. People at other ages experience different versions of this same thing. I talked to lots of recent retirees who moved hopefully into this new season of life beyond their careers. They have endless choices of how to spend their time only to feel unsure about what to do or where they are really needed. And occasionally they long to return to that job, that one that they knew wasn't ideal and that they were looking forward to ending, but they know that they clearly understood their purpose and their worth in that job. These situations I'm describing to you, and many others like them, are nothing to complain about. The choices are mostly good ones. There's no great suffering going on. But you see that as humans strive for happiness and fulfillment and mastery of this thing called life, whoever we are and wherever we go, human beings are always measuring these incommensurate choices choosing one and therefore missing out on others and trying to figure out which one is best. That's what we do. In the story that we begin today, the Israelites are doing this. It's the middle or so of the Old Testament. The Israelites have left slavery in Egypt. They have wandered in the wilderness for a couple of generations, and they find their way into the promised land and settle down. Things are not perfect, but they're pretty good, especially compared to being slaves in Egypt or wandering around in that wilderness. During this time, the people of Israel are led by people called judges and prophets. These are leaders who help them to understand God's will for them. One of these prophets is a man named Samuel. He's a wise sage who has guided the people of Israel his whole life long. Well, his life and his ministry is coming to an end, and though Samuel was a very good leader, his two sons are corrupt. The people do not trust them, and they will not follow them. And so the elders of Israel are at a crossroads, wondering who will lead them. And looking beyond their land at the lands of neighboring peoples, they notice something, and they ask Samuel a question. It is a question of commensurability. Everyone else seems to have a king, they say to Samuel. Give us a king. Samuel consults God about this and then brings a reply to the people. This was this morning's reading. You are God's people, Samuel says. You already have someone to follow. And you really don't want a king. 
And Samuel tells them why. I quote the reading. This is how the king will rule over you, Samuel said. He will take your sons and he will use them for his chariots and his cavalry and his runners for his chariots. He will use them as his commanders of troops of 1,000 and troops of 50, or to do his plowing and his harvesting, or to make his weapons or parts for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, or bakers. He will take your best fields, vineyards, and olive groves and give them to his servants. He will give one-tenth of your grain and your vineyards to his officials and servants. He will take your male and female servants along with the best of your cattle and donkeys and make them do his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and then you yourselves will be slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you chose for yourselves. But on that day, the Lord will not answer you. And the people refused to listen to Samuel and said, No, there must be a king over us so that we can be like the other nations. Our king will judge us and lead us and fight our battles. The people have been warned, and God gives them what they ask for. Saul is anointed as their first king, and after him comes David, and then Solomon, and after that, many other kings, Jeroboam, Ahab, Joash, many others you have likely never heard of. Their stories are recounted in these lengthy books of Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, the books of the prophets. Throughout this period, the Israelites are experimenting with this idea they have, this longing that if they could just have what the neighboring peoples have, then things would go better for them. In doing this, they have made a fatal mistake. They believe that a king is somehow a commensurate alternative to God. They've made a fatal mistake. They believe that a king is somehow a commensurate alternative to God. Living under their, their kings, the Israelites discover what most of us know from our own experience, that Samuel was right about kings. Human rulers tend to do as much to glorify themselves as to serve the people. Human rulers tend to divide people as much as to unite them. And more to the point of this sermon, no matter who the king is, however much hope people place in him, or however virtuous he may be, none of them can ever uphold or sustain the expectations people have for them. So people keep trading one king for another king. And they are always let down. All kings are commensurate with one another, but no king is commensurate with God. The real challenge of this story is for the people not to give their allegiance to the king 
but to give their allegiance to God, to realize their fatal mistake of having made God commensurate with an earthly king. This is more or less the challenge of the entire Bible. The repeated and unbelievable storyline throughout the Bible is that people keep on running away from God, even though God is the only one who never lets them down. This is exactly the same challenge that you and I face. It may sound pious or naive, but this is what we do. Needing the things that God has been offering us all along, we keep trying to find them in something or someone else. There are plenty of different ways the Bible and the Christian tradition has found to talk about this. Some people talk about the need to put God first. That phrase, I'll even call it a cliché, that cliché has never seemed helpful to me because it's hard for me to know what it actually looks like. So here's the second big word I have for you today. And I know it's a nice day, so this doesn't mean I'm only halfway through. The idea I've found helpful when thinking about this, this idea of putting God's first, God first, it's called understanding disordered attachments. According to this idea, God wants us to make good decisions out of a place of freedom. Doing that is what puts God first. The problem, as a scholar named Jim Manny describes it, is that we can only put God first if we are free from many other things, free from personal preferences, societal expectations, fears of all kinds of things like not having enough or being alone. We can only put God first if we can put aside the desire for fame or honor or anything else that stands in the way of the choice that will best serve God and bring us happiness. And all of these things that keep us from real freedom are what I was referring to as disordered attachments. You see, living an ordered life is what we mean when we say we want to put God first, but mostly we live disordered lives, striving for things that don't bring us freedom. Usually it's quite difficult to sort out the confusing muddle of ordered and disordered attachments that most of us live with. When does a normal desire to be liked become abnormal vanity? We all have normal needs and desires. For instance, we need money, all of us. We need money to live, to pay a mortgage, to fix a car. Perhaps you would also like some money for new clothes, a remodeled kitchen, a vacation from time to time. Of course, you see, the question becomes, how much money do I need? And what am I willing to do in order to get it? You can see how one might answer these difficult questions. 
by starting from a position of freedom. By trying to see the situation with detachment from any particular outcome, from other people's ideas of the good life, from considerations of how someone like you should act. But most of the time, our freedom is limited by all of these disordered attachments. And only in knowing and understanding our disordered attachments and their influence upon us can we be free and at peace with our choices. If you think about it, what the Israelites are doing in asking for a king is that they are setting up their entire society according to a disordered attachment. They lose sight of the good life that they had as a people of God because they are paying attention to what their neighbors have. Everyone else has a king, they say. Give us a king. And they enter as a whole nation into a time of living according to disordered attachments. Over the next two Sundays, we're going to study this time. We're going to look more deeply into a couple of ways that this story develops. We will look at this period of Israel's history from the perspective of one of those kings and one of the prophets who calls that king out for his mistakes. And also we'll consider what it means that the Israelites have made this choice to have a king. And they can't go back, so now they must live with it. And this is the part that probably has the most to do with us. For all of us live with disordered attachments. None of us human people are putting God first all the time. We have to acknowledge that we are always making compromises, always living with disordered attachments. And we have to do the best we can to love God and to live the life that God has given us with the choices we have made. Throughout this series, I hope you will consider that these are not just old stories about other people. They are living texts. They are about how hard it is to be free of the incommensurate choices of other people, the ways that the grass is always greener in somebody else's kingdom. And likewise, these Bible stories are about the disordered affections that shape our thoughts that keep us from freely trusting in God, knowing that we are loved, that we are taken care of. We have nothing to fear if only we can trust in God. It will be okay if only we can trust in God. It's not easy. Amen.